This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, this is Self Work, and I'm so glad you're here. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist who's practiced for about 25 years in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I started podcasting last year as I wanted to extend the walls of my practice, not only to those who might be in therapy or who might already be interested in psychology, but to those of you who've never been to therapy, never talked to a therapist, never thought about what it would feel or be like. So maybe this will be a little bit of what a therapy session might feel like to you. I don't know. I've been told that. Today, we're going to be talking about depression, feeling stuck in depression. You know, depression not only can cause you to isolate, to not enjoy things you used to enjoy, to be sad or agitated, but you can become very negative in your thinking, and you can even shut down some ideas that are pretty decent about how you could begin to try to coax energy that's only going inward, I call depression, an implosion of the self, to where you are pushing the energy out. It's really the most difficult thing about depression is how to re-engage with others, re-engage at work, re-engage with your friends, re-engage with your partner, re-engage with your children. But I'm going to offer you an exercise to confront that feeling stuck and that negativity It's very pragmatic, it's very tangible, and it's very easy. Today's email from a listener comes from someone who is estranged from an abusive mom, so she's done that for herself, but now she's not being supported or she's not feeling supported by a new husband as she feels rejection from her in-laws. So if you have any in-law stories or in-law problems, maybe this will be helpful to you. One of these days, I'm going to be an in-law, so... That's kind of scary. (laughs) Okay, so today we're going to be talking about depression and negativity. Sometimes there's not a lot to argue about with someone who's depressed. If it's situational depression, maybe they've lost their job, they've gotten a divorce, they've been diagnosed with a chronic illness, you can't argue that those things aren't depressing. Their lives have become hard. Their energy sources have dried up. Depressive thoughts and negativity have begun to entrench themselves in their lives, like weeds that are strangling the beauty of a garden once full of life. Someone's belief that their lives can get better can grow very, very dim. They'll say things like, I want to get better. I want to feel like myself again, but I can't find the energy to do anything. I know walking would help. I know getting out more would make me feel better. Rationally, I realize all that, but I'm stuck. I'm really, really stuck. I can't tell you how many times as a therapist I've heard just that. How can you believe that you can change? How can you disrupt the hole that this depression has over you? I'm not here to pretend at all that there's an easy answer to that question. But there is an exercise that I've recommended to people over the years that has been helpful. 
This exercise was featured actually in my 61st podcast, which was about three simple ways to build a sense of self-esteem. But I was using it with one of my patients the other day and realized that its focus is mostly on getting unstuck. Basically, when the negative voice in your head has you convinced when you're depressed that it's hopeless. So this exercise is really good about beginning to see yourself as able to change. So I thought it was worth repeating. I give it to people that are losing their faith in their own ability to turn depression around. So maybe it would help you. Let's talk about one woman that I saw several years ago. We'll call her Kelly. Kelly was 35. She'd initially come in to see me with her husband of over a decade. They were both very career-oriented, and as a result, they hadn't paid really very good attention to the quality of their marriage. And they eventually decided to divorce. There weren't any children from the marriage, so they fairly quickly split their assets and fairly amicably moved on with their lives. For Kelly, the first few months were really good. But loneliness began to creep in. She got tired of being with her coupled friends. She got tired of being without a partner. She stopped exercising and started sleeping late on the weekends. Money was a lot tighter than it had been in the past. That was tough. A relationship that she thought had potential fell apart. And Kelly began realizing that she might never have children of her own. That was really tough. The enormity of the choices she'd made and the difficulties she was facing grew overwhelming, and depression began to set in. When she came back in to see me, she was three years post-divorce, and she was calling that divorce the worst mistake of my life. Her husband had remarried. She felt alone and frightened, hopeless and very ashamed. She said things like, I'm scared to make other choices. How can I trust my own decisions? So I do nothing. I go to work. I come home, and I do the same thing the next day. Maybe if you struggle with depression, you can see yourself in Kelly. She no longer believed in herself or her ability to change. She was losing the battle with her depression. So I was sitting there in front of her trying to think about what might help. And suddenly an idea popped in my mind that I'd never used before. It just sort of came to me, kind of. So I listened to my gut and offered her this idea. So I said to her, Every day, I want you to either do something you've always wanted to do but never have done, or I want you to do something that your best friend would say you'd never do. These aren't life-altering things. I want them to be small things, like maybe you've never eaten a mango, but you've always been curious, or maybe there's a street that you've always wanted to drive down, but you've never taken the time. I mean, these are simple things, things that can be done in five or ten minutes. And then the second part, about as far as what you'd never do, make that easy as well. Maybe you'd never be caught dead without earrings, so don't wear earrings, Maybe you always eat scrambled eggs, so order them sunny side up. Just something you never do. I usually tell the story when I'm giving this exercise now that I don't particularly care for my feet, so I always wear black and brown shoes, just kind of nondescript shoes. 
And if I were doing this exercise, I would borrow or I'd go to some thrift store and I'd buy a pair of pink shoes or red shoes or something and I'd wear them. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Oh, and I have to tell you this funny story in the middle of this. So I had one woman come in and she was just laughing about this exercise. And I said, what are you laughing about? She said, well, I went home and I started to make lists of all these things that I would do. And then I remembered the part that I was supposed to do things that I never did. And I realized, wait a minute, I always make lists. So she said, I put my pen down. I thought, I'm not going to make a list. I'm going to be spontaneous. And that had been very, very eye-opening for her. But anyway, back to Kelly. She smiled at me and agreed, although she looked really kind of perplexed. She came in the next session. She sat down very quickly and really in a fairly irritated tone said, well, I thought your exercise was stupid, but I did it anyway. But then a funny thing happened. A friend called me to have lunch. I'd been avoiding her because her life is going great, and I felt like I didn't have much to offer. But I went, and sure enough, I found myself talking about all those little things I'd done the past week. The mango I'd eaten, the road I'd gone down, the pink shoes I wore, to use my example. And she looked at me, and she said, is that what was supposed to happen? You know, when I gave her that exercise, I really wasn't sure what would happen. But I've never forgotten what her outcome was, because basically she began engaging with her life again. She had set change in motion. Yes, small steps, small change, but change. And if you can convince yourself that you can change the small things, then perhaps the things that are harder, that will take more effort, that will take some practice, perhaps you can change those too. Because even the small changes are very real. I can assure you, if you see me in pink shoes, that's a big deal. And what I've learned as a therapist, and I'm sure I've said it on other podcasts, that insight is wonderful. Insight helps you make connections. If you understand something from your past, your present, and you make those connections. I mean, a simple example is... If you were bitten by a dog when you were five and now you are scared of dogs, that's an obvious kind of connection. But there are things that aren't so obvious that you can gain insight about. Oh, that happened, and so that's why I'm the way I am today. That's insight. But from my perspective, you don't get hope from insight. You get hope from behavior change. When that person can lean down and pet a dog they can find hope. You know, I'm not going to be trapped by the fact that that dog bit me when I was five. Maybe I can even get a dog. Wouldn't that be great? So you see, the point of the exercise is to point out in a very real way to the person suffering with depression that they can begin to change. You know, whether you're depressed or not, this exercise can be very helpful to expand and broaden your own life, to bring fresh things into it. So maybe you'll gain a new perspective on what your own life can be. And that's a life where one small change at a time should never, ever be discounted. So I hope you'll try out my exercise. Maybe tomorrow I'll even wear pink shoes.
Our email from a listener today is an interesting one. It's more than about a relationship with in-laws, but it's certainly about how you deal with people who are not treating you well in your life. And yet, you're in a relationship with them, and so you have to work your way through it. The listener gives me her name and tells me that she's from Pennsylvania. Says, I'm a new listener. I found your podcast a week ago and have been listening to it nonstop. Thank you very much. My numbers, I think there are a lot of you who are doing that because my numbers are way up. I have found it to be so helpful to me personally. I want to thank you. I grew up with two abusive alcoholics, both physically and emotionally, and recently been struggling with past trauma. And your podcast is helping me tremendously. I'm sure there is trauma. I'm a newlywed. I was married just shy of a year ago and have been with my now husband for the past seven years. I wanted to reach out because before my wedding, I completely cut ties with my emotionally and physically abusive mother and her husband, only to marry into a family that feels just as emotionally abusive. It's very difficult because my father-in-law is exactly like my mother, and when he puts me down, it's very re-traumatizing. I try to communicate this to my husband, that his dad makes me feel like my mother does, and he just does not seem to understand, because according to him, he had a wonderful childhood, and his parents have been nothing short of supportive with him. Total opposites of what I had growing up. But when it comes to me, his father's disapproval seems very obvious, and it hurts. My father-in-law no longer talks to me whenever we're in the same room. He doesn't even look at me. I haven't done anything to deserve this, and worst of all, my husband does nothing to defend me to stop the emotional abuse. The only thing I can think of is that my husband and I are from two completely different worlds, and because of this, his father strongly disapproves of me. I think religion plays a part. His family are Christians, and I didn't grow up with any religious influences or anyone to steer my spiritual education when I was younger. His mother is constantly pressuring me to find God and get good with Him, among other things. My husband is not very religious either. I know you've done podcast episodes on abusive mothers and parent relationships, but I was wondering if you could do one on toxic relationships with in-laws and how that can affect a marriage. I'd also like to know what I can or should do to make things better or just get through these awkward occasions when I'm with his family. Well, this was a great question, and I think it's multifaceted. So this is what I've said to her. I'm so glad you found self-work, and I'm delighted it's been helpful to you. To me, there are several levels of problem. One is that we, more often than not, are drawn to familiar dynamics, especially family dynamics. And yet, what I hear is slightly different than what you're describing. I can certainly hear that your father-in-law is very cold toward you, and perhaps you're exactly right, it's for the reason of religion. Your mother-in-law is pushing for you to become more religious, more spiritual, perhaps as a way of influencing her own son. But the thing I hear most is your understandable dismay and hurt that your husband seems to ignore or discount the problem. And that is what's similar to your growing up. He's not tuning into you just like your mother and father didn't tune into you, and neither took care of you appropriately, and he doesn't seem to be either. You focus on your father-in-law, and I understand that he may be something like your mother, but it's really your husband's behavior that's also perhaps the most potent. 
Now, I always counsel people to look at what could be their part of a problem. It is likely that you may be sensitive to rejection. You come from an abusive mother and abusive alcoholic parents. And although you've estranged yourself from her, I am sure that you're still trying to heal from the damage of that relationship. So, that sensitivity may be your peace. But, I tell couples all the time, if it's a problem for one of you, it's a problem for both of you. You may have to compromise what to do about the problem. And frankly, your husband may not know how to confront his own parents. That may be his own emotional immaturity. And certainly, although he says he's had a great family life, it sounds like his parents are fairly controlling and intrusive to me. One of the ways that anyone can get a lot of control is through withdrawal. In fact, I think withdrawal is far more potent a controlling mechanism than even aggression is. And that's what your father-in-law is using. So one of the ways you can protect yourself is to expect the silent treatment you're receiving from your father-in-law. If you expect differently, then it's likely it will hurt you time after time after time. And even if an emotional scab has formed, it gets ripped off immediately as soon as he won't look at you or talk with you. I journal about it in a private diary or try to come up with ideas to help you emotionally detach. You don't have to stand there and not be part of things. That's not what I mean by detachment, but not to allow it to affect you so much. It may be that your father-in-law will eventually warm up a bit or not. You don't have control over that. But if he can see or tell that his silence upsets you, that his withdrawal is working, and he's not wild about the idea that the two of you are together, then he may continue to do the same thing. However, it is possible that a lack of reaction on your part might calm things down a bit. But again, I want to stress that it's really your relationship with your husband that's much more important than your in-laws. So helping him understand in some way or another that seeing your perspective is vital to the health of your relationship with him, that's where the true work is. Then perhaps y'all can compromise about how to deal with his parents. Thanks so much for being here on Self Work Today. I did an interview a couple of episodes ago with Sarah Fader, and I see that many of you really like the interview format. So I will be doing more of those. Probably every third or fourth podcast will be an interview. I love doing it. It was a lot of fun. Please reach out to me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com and send me an email. I love hearing who you are, where you live, what your issues are, ideas for podcasts. I make these podcasts very diverse because my practice is very diverse. And so if one podcast doesn't suit you or isn't your cup of tea, perhaps the next one will be. My website is DrMargaretRutherford.com and I post weekly there, a blog post, and you can subscribe there. And receive a newsletter, as well as my free ebook, Seven Commandments of Good Therapy. And you'll get my blog post and my podcast all wrapped up in an email. Or, of course, you can subscribe right where you listen iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever. Thank you again for ratings and reviews that you've left. There have been so many in the last couple of weeks, and that is very meaningful to me. And tell your friends about self work. 
We're growing, and it's very motivating to me to be growing in listenership, and thank you for helping me with that. And, of course, my gratitude to you for being here. Take very good care. I hope this episode was helpful to you as you begin to try to believe that you can change. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work. Self Work.